This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcasting every Tuesday morning, 8 to 9, Pacific Time on KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California, on the web at KUCI.org. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. In his new book, The Great Derangement, our guest today, Matt Taibbi, set out to describe George Bush's red state, blue state America post-9-11, only to find a growing chunk of Americans so turned off or radicalized by electoral hijinks, a spineless news media, and lying politicians that they abandoned the political mainstream altogether. They joined what Taibbi calls The Great Derangement. Taibbi covers politics as a contributing editor to Rolling Stone magazine. Matt Taibbi, welcome to Weekly Signals. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. How are you doing today? Are you in New York? Is it, is it yeah, a good day? Yeah, I'm in New York. I'm uh, going to go back out on the campaign trail in a couple of days, but uh, I'm off right now. Well, where are you headed on the campaign trail? What's, what are you going to look at? Um, I'm going to be with McCain for a while. I mean, I, I spent, now that the Democratic race is more or less over, they're going to send me back out to the Republicans for a while, it looks like. Do you have, have any plans for uh, Senator McCain? Are you going to look into any particular part of his uh, Hagee uh, past? He's no, I, uh, you know, I think I've done a little bit of that already. Yeah. You know, <laughs> this, at this point, it's just the, uh, you know, get on the plane and do the grueling 10,000-mile-a-day thing. For uh, a while. Do, you, do you have a sense of his campaign, where it's at right now, in terms of its organizational skill? Are they still, it's still a work in progress, or do you think they've settled on the people and the message yet? Well, I think there's a uh, there's a lot of hand wringing going on in the Republican Party right now, and you have to remember that that John McCain really cut his teeth as a Republican politician, sort of as an insurgent uh, candidate who who throughout his career has sort of defined himself as someone who wasn't part of the the George Bush neoconservative wing of his own party, and now and now he's that he's the candidate, he's really got to sort of uh, on the fly pull off. A partnership with those same people. I mean, he's uh, he's yeah. got this tremendous influx of money from those quarters coming in, and I th- I think it's sort of an uneasy relationship. And they're going to have to figure out. I, I think they're they're kind of lost right now about what the platform is going to be, yeah. what the direction, the strategy, all that stuff, because they're in new uncharted waters right now. Yeah, I, I've 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 been of the opinion of his campaign because going back just a few months, just right around the time of New Hampshire. I know he was flying, you know, commercial airlines, and and he was he was down to a bare bones uh, organization, and, right. and he in since he his ascendancy to the to the uh, nomination uh, has been picking people up along the way. But uh, these having been in some political campaigns, it's very difficult process to to begin with with just a clean slate, but to do this on the run with all the scrutiny that he's under, it's it's very difficult. And I have a feeling, my my sense of this is that these are a lot of these are those mercenaries who will throw him under the bus and uh, at the first real sign of blood and it's gonna be a very difficult, an uneasy relationship all along the way. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I think you can you can see the disorganization already just, you know, for for a while he was he was doing great just sort of staying in the background and taking trips abroad while Hillary and, and Obama, you know, tore each other's throats out for months. But then, you know, I think they, they decided last week that he had to make a reappearance on the scene and, and sort of get in the newspapers again. And what they did, the, the, one of the first things they did was this whole business of attacking Obama on the, uh, you know, calling him an appeaser. Um, but, you know, to, to have that happen at the same time that George Bush was making the same point, 
uh, was a, is an enormous misstep because the last thing they want to do right now is is uh, you know align themselves with with uh, George Bush. So to, for, for them to have that be their first big salvo against Barack Obama was it, it just testifies to the indecision within that part within that campaign. It, it tells you they don't have a real good strategy yet. I, I want to throw something out. Speaking of conspiracy theories, because we know we're going to get to some of the the in the great derangement here. I am still not absolutely convinced that he will be the nominee. I, I, McCain? Yes. I, I do think that at some point <laughs> that something will happen. I don't know if it will be a, something physical will happen to him that will cause the, the Republican elders to have some very serious reservations. Because I think he's a terrible messenger. I think he's not a very good – he doesn't convey a message very well. And he's going to increasingly come across as an angry well, – I hate to say it this way – an angry old man – and uh, he's just a terrible, terrible candidate. And I, I just can't help but think they're having some real serious reservations about him being the standard bearer for the uh, Republican Party. Well, I mean, one of the one of the worst kept secrets in Washington is that John McCain is a much loathed figure uh, by other Republicans uh, in on the Hill. Uh, he's considered a sort of famously irascible, yeah. uh, self-righteous character who uh, is, is always grandstanding and, and uh, throwing other Republicans under the bus. Yeah. Um, you know, to give you a great example, I was talking to a, um, to a uh, Republican uh, congressman in, in Los Angeles about two months ago, and he was complaining about John McCain and what a jerk he was. And then at the, at the, during the same conversation, he mentioned that he had had problems getting to Los Angeles because he couldn't find a parking space at the airport in Washington. And then he recalled that it was John McCain who had yanked the congressional parking spaces at the airport in Washington. Uh, because, so, you know, I mean, McCain has, has this history of, of doing things uh, and getting in arguments and, and losing his temper, even with other Republicans. And, and because of that, he doesn't have the sort of natural well of loyalty right, right. Uh, in his own party. And, and you're right. I mean, it may, maybe that'll come back and bite him. Maybe it'll happen before the convention. I mean, who knows? Yeah. I mean, he's, he's an old man, and, 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 you know, he might he might have a health issue or, you know, who knows what happens. Well, this thing fell into his lap. Nobody, if the other... Six, hey, he said he ascended. I, I think uh, yeah. of everyone else as descending, the, you know, and he was I mean, still in the, in the swamp, if but these he was guys the only had, one yeah. standing. If these guys hadn't, as a group, been so repugnant, I mean, and that's the only word I can think of, all of them were so thoroughly unacceptable, and that, because they, the Republicans wanted somebody else. I'm sure that the as I say, the elders, they wanted, they wanted either Romney or they wanted Giuliani, but they just couldn't make that fly. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I remember um, watching uh, the Republican debate in South Carolina last summer and uh, standing in the press gallery and hearing another reporter watch the, the group of politicians on stage and he turns to me and says, "My God, this is like the freaking Adams family, you know. Uh, you know cause all the candidates were so deformed, or you know, like they were like they were like a bunch of monsters gallery, you know. I mean, it was it was awful. And I think if they had had anybody who was halfway human, they would they would have put that person on. But they, they, it just didn't work out that way, you know. So they're stuck with this guy." Uh, we're speaking with Matt Taibbi. The book is The Great Derangement, and we'll get to it soon enough. But, but, <laughs> That's all right. Yeah. 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 yeah there's, uh, I have a copy here of Parade Magazine, which I always refer to if there's <laughs> anything political I want answered. On the cover of it is Senator Jim Webb. Uh, uh-huh. What do you think about his chances are for uh, being the vice presidential candidate? And do you think he'd be a good response to McCain? Well, um, 
it's, it's possible. I mean, I, I think they're, one of the problems that they have is that they, they, in, in getting a running mate, they have to find someone who counters some of McCain's weaknesses. So they, they really definitely need somebody who sounds like a Southerner probably, um, uh-huh. who has uh, some conservative bona fides, uh, who's religious, uh, you know, I mean, maybe Webb fits that bill. I, I don't know. I, I think I think they're going to struggle to find somebody um, who isn't going to uh, clash with McCain on a lot of issues because he's just got he's got that history of voting against his own party and, and making cracks against other people in the party. So they're they're going to have some divisions. Maybe, maybe Webb is the guy that that you know is is least uh, you know ca- clashing to that to that uh, ticket. Uh, now now my my co-host here. Like uh, likes Al Gore. I think the dream ticket for Barack is <laughs> is Al Gore. I think if and given let's just let me let me make my argument real quick, and that is given the expansion of power that we've seen of the for the vice president's office under Cheney, it's turned into in my mind. It, not that I'm happy about what Cheney has done in any way, but the I, it, the fact is it's become kind of the prime minister's position within government now. And it seems mm-hmm. to me that if if we're going to continue to exploit the powers that Cheney has brought into this office, Al Gore would make a very good vice presidential candidate for Barack Obama in the sense that he would be given some real power and opportunity to affect the issues that obviously we know that Al Gore is involved with. And it seems like that would also pretty much end – that would seal the deal, I think, with the electorate in terms of uh, Barack's uh, uh, election. It would It would show that there are some other – you know. Anyway, so what do you think? <laughs> well, um, you know, I, I I talked to one guy who was a sort of Democratic campaign. Well, he wasn't a campaign operative. He worked in the force of a party. But the the word is that Gore would rather have all of his fingernails pulled out than than run on the ticket. Apparently. Okay. Uh, so I I don't think that's going to happen. I think you know one of the things that they they look at when they 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 choose a running mate is they they use this sort of Dan Quayle paradigm where you know, if you pick somebody who's obviously uh, who's sort of superficially unimpressive, it makes your candidate look a little bit more prestigious. Mm, okay. uh, if you pick somebody who's of tremendous import, like a Gore or a Hillary Clinton, it might make uh, Obama look a little bit wobbly. And I think because of Obama's, you know, he, he's sort of a relative political newcomer, I have a suspicion that they're not going to pick someone who's older, who's much older and um, and much more uh, famous than, than he is uh, as, as a running mate. Okay. Well, what do you make of uh, Geraldine Ferraro's comments then, uh, in in regard to what happened between Hillary and Obama? Uh, Ferraro said that uh, Obama was uh, sexist, I think. I don't know if those are the exact words. Yeah. What's going on there? Why is she saying that she might not even vote for Obama? Well, uh, she, she also said that if Obama wasn't a black man, that he, yeah. he yeah. wouldn't be—he wouldn't even be in this position. I think that was—that was, that was a, another controversial comment that she made. You know, there's there's definitely um, uh, a sentiment out there among Hillary Clinton supporters that they uh, that people are so upset about what happened that they're not going—a lot of them are not going to support Barack Obama. And I think, I think a lot of a lot of what I saw in the campaign trail is that Hillary's. Most dug-in supporters tended to be um, uh, older professional women uh, who've maybe had uh, a lot of bad experiences in their own personal professional lives with uh, being passed over uh, for men uh, or having bad experiences, uh, in, uh, you know, at the hands of sort of seductive male charmers like Barack Obama. Mm-hmm. And I think, despite the fact that a lot of us look at Barack Obama and think this is a 
uh, you know, a gentlemanly, nice guy. He also represents for a lot of Hillary supporters this, this sort of, uh, you know, type of, of male who has always had it easy when women have had it hard. And I think that's one of the reasons why people are, uh, are maybe considering not voting for him uh, because after he beat Hillary Clinton. That's my theory anyway. Okay. We're speaking with Matt Taibbi. The book is The Great Derangement, a terrifying true story of war, politics, and religion at the twilight of the American empire. Now, we live here in Orange County. We've had our, mm-hmm. our fill of derangement here. Uh, what, what, talk a little bit about the book. Tell us what you meant by uh, the great derangement and, and uh, what condition our country is in right now uh, coming up to this election. I mean, the basic theory of the book is that people are so um, disenchanted with with how ineffective and corrupt our government is that they have lost confidence in mainstream politics as a a means of improving their lives, and they've retreated on both both ends of the spectrum into these increasingly conspiratorial or paranoid um, types of political movements. You know, like you have the 9-11 Truth Movement on one side, and you have... Um, you know the, the apocalyptic end of the world scenarios on the on the r- religious right, and uh, it's just I think people have now gone into politics more uh, as like an escapist fantasy, or or more as a way of finding their own identities, and, and less as a way to actually improve their lives through political action. Um, that's that's sort of the idea of the book. I mean, I think it's also a little bit about how we've sort of broken down into political tribalism where, you know, in order for my belief system to be true, the other guy has to be not only wrong, but completely eliminated from the planet, you know. Uh, And I think you saw a little bit of that in this Hillary-Obama race, too. I mean, uh, you know, people are are just, it's it's just become a much more extreme and and, uh, form of politics than we used to have. Now, do you think that Obama is the remedy for this? Do you think that he'd be able to uh, calm things down a bit and have people uh, be more reasonable when they have disagreements? Well, you know, I thought initially in this campaign, I actually I thought that. I, I, my editor and I even had a discussion that Obama was going to be bad for our book because uh, <laughs> he, you know, he had he was running this kind of inclusive campaign, which the, and the whole thrust of it was. You know, everybody is just as much of a citizen as everybody else, and we're all in this together. And, you know, you don't, just because you disagree with somebody doesn't mean they have to be, you know, liquidated and, you know, <laughs> that yeah. sort of thing. But, you know, as, as time went on, the Hillary Obama fight became increasingly militant. And I think you even see, you see some of those attitudes among Obama supporters towards Hillary supporters now. And I think it's kind of a, it's kind of a sad thing that, that it, it, it started out as a feel-good story and kind of ended up as something else. Do you, do you think that that's actually true of Barack himself? Do you, I mean, I know that you, in order to run for president, it's not a debate society. You're running for president of the most powerful position in the world. Uh, certainly you have to have that, uh, that aggressive nature in you to, to want to do this. But I have yet to hear in his rhetoric the kind of, the kind of rhetoric I've heard out of Hillary in terms of just sort of the sniping and the, the questioning oh, yeah, of his experience. Yeah. I haven't heard it from him. I can understand where his supporters would, would be in that mode, but right. are we hearing that from Barack? No, no. I think, I think he went through an enormous lengths to take the high road yeah. in this whole thing. And I, I think you actually saw some of his frustration uh, in the later stages of the campaign, sort of before Pennsylvania or around Pennsylvania when 
you know, he, he was sort of looking at the media saying, look, you know, can somebody please point out the fact that I'm, that I'm not, I'm not uh, you know, going negative and, and, and yeah. taking the low road here. And he wasn't getting enough credit for that. And I, I think, but, I, but he did survive it, you know. I mean, he made it through without having to resort to that. And maybe that, that will start paying dividends down the road because now he, he still has some credibility as, as, as a healer, as somebody who, you know, is willing to, to, to embrace everybody and not just his own supporters. And, and you know, maybe, maybe that will pay off down the road. Yeah, I have to tell you, I was very, very impressed with watching him during the Reverend, the stages, later stages of the Reverend Wright thing. And I know he had a rough time at that ABC debate, and, and uh, there was a sense that he was just sort of fading a little bit. But he never, it, it, that really took, uh, it's, it's hard to say these words in, in today's political context, but he, he did demonstrate a profile in courage to not do the thing that everyone was urging him to do, a lot of people were urging him to do, which was to go after Hillary, use the same kind of terminology, the same sort of uh, attacks. And he really, and, and seeing his uh, uh, support erode in the polls, he held on. And I think it, it's a measure of some level of sophistication within the electorate that they stayed with him. They didn't yeah. abandon him, despite what every night on MSNBC and CN, and you know CNN and, and Fox, every night they were going after him uh, on this Reverend Wright stuff. Fox was twenty four seven on this stuff, uh, and uh, and he held tight, and uh, and the electorate seemed to to hang in there with him, which was very encouraging to me. Yeah, no, it's it's, it's great, and you know I think most people don't realize exactly how much pressure yeah. these candidates are uh, under to behave in a certain way. I mean, I, in Iowa, it, you might remember briefly in Iowa, there was this whole controversy of, you know, did Obama have what it takes to, yeah. to do the brass knuckle, knock down, drag it out politics necessary to win the presidency, right? Mm-hmm. And, and everywhere he went, reporters, every time he had what, you know, what we call a press avail, every time he, went, he, he faced reporters and had to answer questions, uh, he would answer, you know, 10, 15 questions along the lines of, you know, are you tough enough? Are you, are you, do you have what it takes to go, to, to go hard against, against uh, somebody else? You know, do you, do you, are you enough of a fighter uh, to, to, to do this, pull this thing off? And, and, you know, a lot of candidates, when, when they start hearing those questions for the 100th, 200th, 300th time, they start to give in to the, the temptation to fight back yeah. and to behave the way the press wants them to behave. And, and to his credit, he, he, he never did it. And, you know, I think that was, um, to a certain extent, the press tried to punish him for not going along. Yeah. It's what they wanted him to do. But I think in the end, you know, he might have he won some respect somewhere yeah. for some of the people. And I think that's a good thing. Well, let's get back to the book, The Great Derangement. Uh, we have a couple of—you you visited Cornerstone Church. Yeah. In 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 the, in the book, and uh, tell us about your experience at Cornerstone. Is it Houston? Have I got that right? Am I San, San, San Antonio? San, I'm sorry, yeah. San Antonio. Yeah. Is, yeah um, is there something you, know, you I, haven't? I wanted to do a, a a section in the book about sort of the end time or apocalyptic movements, yeah. and mm-hmm. so I uh, I picked this church down in San Antonio, and, and kind of serendipitously, it turned out to be Pastor John Hagee's church. Yes. <laughs> uh, and um, you know, these are people who believe that the end of the world is imminent, um, and that America has to support Israel because, um, in the final battle at Armageddon, it's going to be this knockdown, dragout, uh, you know, fight between the forces of good, which is going to be Israel, and the forces of evil, which is probably going to be Russia and Iran. Um, it's basically going to be a, a, a giant conflict there. And, 
And so I, I joined this church, and I had to go through this whole indoctrination process. So they took us to a retreat. I had to learn how to, like, vomit demons into bags and speak in tongues, <laughs> and it was completely crazy. I mean, it was um, it was a very strange experience, but it gave me, you know, some, some good insight into you know, what, what life in that, that kind of world is like. Did you feel rejuvenated after you vomited your demons? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's really funny. They, they teach us in the church... Uh, that um, we all have incurred some kind of wound in our childhood as you know because of some traumatic event in our childhoods, and yeah. that as a result of that traumatic event, we are all carrying demons inside of us, and that we have to learn how to expel those demons and so they 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 made us get in line and they they handed up paper bags and asked us to vomit our demons into bags and to give you an example of how literally some people took this, there were people actually in the church who thought that we we would lose weight doing this. Uh, <laughs> just, so, were you on scales or anything? Did, the, they, the, you know, did they Were they weighing you beforehand? Did they do any no, scientific? No, but, I mean, there, were, there were people in my group who were like, well, they have to weigh something, right? <laughs> well, I'm wondering if this is the, uh, this of the doctrine of anorexia nervosia or something like that. <laughs> exactly, yeah. It was, it was some kind of uh, demon reduction weight plan. I don't know. It was very strange. Well, what, what's your, what's your sense? Go I'm sorry. No, I, I was going to say, what's your sense that these churches provide? Now, you also talk in the book about these mega churches, and one of which the Cornerstone Church, Redmond Hagee's Cornerstone Church, is. They are they are sucking uh, the uh, the landscape uh, up of uh, the the smaller churches, and they're providing this kind of uber community. Um, uh, describe the the effect that this is having on the churches that are in the surrounding communities, especially around Cornerstone, and the, the impact it's having, yeah, the more traditional, smaller churches, and the impact it's having on the people in these churches, where is it becoming more and more of their life? Or, well, I think what, what happens, a lot, a lot of the reasons that these megachurches are flourishing, it has, has a lot to do with the, the fact that the labor markets are so fluid and so many people are moving from place to place. I mean, I remember I visited... Southern Ohio before the midterm elections, and I was doing a story about this one congressional district, and they were telling me about how, you know, they had opened up, there was some company that had opened up a giant corporate campus there, and because they had so many people coming from, from other places, um, you know, when these people, it's like when you go to a new a new city and you have to buy a light bulb, I mean, you're, you're, or, or something, you go to the Home Depot because you, you recognize it, as opposed uh-huh. to finding the mom-and-pop hardware store, right. you know? Right. And I think a lot of people, when they come to these new cities, um, you know, they, they go to the big megachurch because it has a public presence, it's on television, uh, they've seen it from the highway, or whatever it is. And so you join these gigantic churches, and um, I think it's, you know, that people are everywhere are looking for the same things. They're looking for community, they're looking for answers and all that stuff, but it's 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 much harder to get it when there are 19,000 people in your church than you know than it is when there are you know 400 or or 200 or something like that well, so. well is in in these mega churches you you happen to find one that's obviously very political yeah, Hagee's mm-hmm. leader of a, a number of organizations uh, dedicated to the idea of uh, Israel and, uh, and politically speaking all kinds of issues and mm-hmm. obviously endorsing John McCain um but are are these mega churches? They tend to be political, or is this, or is he more the exception, or is he the rule within these? No, I think I, I think in southern, especially in southern Baptists, you know, in, in, in that the southern mega, mega churches, I think you often hear, um, uh, you know, disparaging comments about environmentalists, liberals, 
um, you know, Hillary Clinton. I mean, I, I was at one uh, church retreat. It was mostly people from Cornerstone. But, you know, there was one pastor who got up and said that if Hillary Clinton gets elected, she's going to tax the churches, blah, blah, blah. I mean, you, you, just, you hear this stuff pretty commonly, mm-hmm. and I think there's, an, there's an impression out there that, that the Democrats are, are not religious people, which, you know, who knows, might be true even, you know, and, <laughs> and, uh, and I think, um, you know, it's, it's more overt in some churches. It was certainly very overt in ours. I mean, in our, in our Bible study group, we had to say prayers for Scooter Libby. We had to say prayers for George Bush, mm-hmm. you know, but uh, there's, there's a lot of that stuff out there. There's a group out there called the Presidential Prayer Group. Have you ever heard about these people? Yeah, yeah. yeah at yeah. least I think the same one it has the the website at prayer a day type of thing for the president. Right. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. You have these cyber prayers where you're supposed to click on if you want to pray for Norman Mineta, you know, or uh-huh. whatever. It, it's, it's very <laughs> weird stuff. But I mean, it's it's common. I think that's much more common than the than the reverse. That's for sure. Uh-huh. You know, uh, I've got one more question before we let you go, unless Mike has something else. No. I, I, I hear you've uh, you played on the Mongolian national basketball team. I think you represented Ulaanbaatar. Am I right? Yeah, I was you, in the Mongolian Basketball Association. Oh, yeah. yeah. Were you guard, uh, forward? What were we playing? I was like a three, you know, like yeah. a small forward, basically. Yeah. I, was, I was known as the Mongolian Rodman. Yeah, uh, cool. Yeah, yeah. I, I, led, I was leading the league in rebounding when I left. Wow. Year, so. wow. Yeah. Were you That's as aggressive pretty- as Rodman? Huh? Were you as aggressive as Rodman? Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. In fact, I got I got uh, my my own the owner of our team was a hotel owner in in Ulaanbaatar, and yeah. he was trying to drum up uh, interest in the league. So he actually instructed me to start fights and act crazy. <laughs> I, I would jump up on the scores table and do the Macarena in the middle of the game. Really? Okay. Wow, man, that's very impressive. That's very. Yo, here's probably the most important question we've asked you today. Uh, do you have any favorites for the NBA championship? Uh, well, I'm from Boston. Uh, okay. So I'm <laughs> so but you know what? I just I don't feel real good about them this year. So I I think I'm gonna I'm gonna have to go with the Lakers. Really? Uh, All I right. Think, I think it, this this is their year. And uh, well, I, I'm, I, I'm saying that without trying to pander. To your <laughs> life, so. Well, I will say, going into the playoffs, I would have said Celtics. They look just dominant. But the playoffs have revealed some very very strong, uh, very big weaknesses in their game. Yeah. And uh, yeah, well, especially Ray Ray Allen apparently has been dead for months. Apparently. You so, didn't know. Yeah, I, don't know I know. I know. That, well, that's too. But well, listen, we're, we're hoping. I truly am hoping for a Laker-Celtic final, and I think that would be yeah. fantastic for the sport and great for, for every, all the entertainment part and, um, aspect of it. But uh, Yeah, it would definitely be cool. Yeah. Definitely. Well, thank you so much for being here on Weekly Signals. The book's The Great Derangement, a terrifying true story of war politics yeah. and religion at the twilight of the American empire. Thank you, Matt Tahibi, for, for being here today. Thanks so much, guys. Right. Appreciate it. To learn more about Weekly Signals interviews, including upcoming guests, or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. And be sure to visit nathancallahan.com for daily readings and feature articles. Until next week, I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Caspar. And this is Weekly Signals.